0: Thank you all so much for being here today. If you were here last week, uh, we spent our Easter service uh, doing Easter stuff. We were looking at the book of Luke. Uh, we, we interfaced with the final moments of Jesus' life, and then we went on to the resurrection, and then what the resurrection means uh, if we truly believe that Jesus rose from the dead and how that kind of impacted our life. So if, if this is your second week, or it's just been a while, before Easter, we have been working through the gospel according to Mark. So actually, we're going to rewind uh, a considerable amount of time in the narrative today. This is going to take us back to the early parts of Jesus' ministry, uh, well well before his death and resurrection, obviously. So if you've got your Bibles today, please go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we are going to be spending our time in verses 7 through 12 today. I'll give you a moment to just make your way there. To help remind us of where we've been, uh, we meet Jesus today during his ministry on earth, which was to do, uh, uh, to to spread the good news of the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter one, in verse 14, uh, Jesus went to Galilee, he was proclaiming the good news of God. He says, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near, or your translation may say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. What follows Jesus' proclamation of the gospel is his recruitment of the disciples. And he does this as he's doing two main things Jesus is traveling, he's preaching, and he's healing. As he does those two things, he he draws the ire of the current reigning class of religious elites, the Pharisees and the scribes. So today, we actually find Jesus in the synagogue where he's just kind of thrown down the gauntlet with the Pharisees about healing on the Sabbath. You guys remember a couple weeks ago we went through that? He challenges the Pharisees with the question, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And he doesn't let them answer, and he heals a man's withered hand in front of them. And then verse 6 of chapter 3 says, the Pharisees immediately went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him, against Jesus, how they might kill Jesus. So that takes us to where our scripture is today. So let's let's pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 3, and it'll be on the screens for you if you don't have anything uh, to hold in front of you. Verse 7 of Mark chapter 3 says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard about all that he was doing, they came to him. The story of these encounters, it's really important to our understanding of what Jesus' words and actions actually mean for us today. So we're going to be spending a good deal of time looking at each moment in this to try to just take what we can learn from it all. So the story, as it stands, is that Jesus healed a man in front of the Pharisees. It was on the Sabbath. And then they all put their heads together and they left. Which is, you never want to see that. You never want to see everybody that hates you just get up and leave at the same time. Like, never anything has ever happened good after that. Jesus knew the hearts of these guys. He knew the hearts of these men. And he also knew that it wasn't his time to die yet. So he takes his disciples to the sea. And we can safely assume that this is the Sea of Galilee we're talking about here. Over the first three chapters of Mark, Jesus' ministry is, is centered around the Sea of Galilee. Now, you probably don't spend all your time poring around like old biblical maps. I know I sure as heck don't. So what I thought would be helpful is I actually just plugged the Sea of Galilee into Google. And I just went into Google Maps. And honestly, you know, I thought it'd be bigger. <laughs> It's just, all the Sea of Galilee is, it's just a large freshwater lake. It is Israel's largest, but it's just a freshwater lake. I feel a little light, too. I don't know if you're like me. I've always romanticized doing, like, a big trip, you know, where you could go and, and just see all the places that Jesus saw. Or, like, you could go, a lot of uh, young pastors, young ministers, they'll do a thing where they go to the Middle East and they follow the the same road that Paul took. I feel like living in the in, in the U.S., we don't really get a chance to just go and touch like cobblestone that has just seen ancient history. Like, I just think that's really cool. It's not something we get to do a lot here. Uh, Like, I'll give you an example from my own life. Uh, We, uh, my family and I, we went to Germany a few years ago and I was like, it would be really cool to see a little bit of history. So we went to Wittenberg, uh, Wittenberg, excuse me, where uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door. I thought that was awesome, but we went inside and it was just a tourist attraction. That's all it was. Like, we went inside. I bought a, uh, I bought like five Martin Luther energy drinks. That's a real thing. It was kind of cool. It was called Devil's Death. I was like, all right, that's pretty metal. I gave it to all my like reformed buddies. They were like, yeah, they didn't drink it. They just kept it on their shelf. It feels a little irreverent to me, you know, that you could just like, you can just find a place that Jesus was, that he revealed the kingdom of heaven. You can find that place on Google Maps today. And it's just like a strip mall now, like, you might think this is funny. I, I wanted to check out Capernaum, right? I was like, that was an important place. I went to Capernaum on Google. I did this this week. <laughs> Capernaum, you know what it said? It said, Capernaum, the town of Jesus, closed, opens 8 a.m. on a Tuesday. <laughs> like, what? Does that seem strange to you? That's like some dystopian Blade Runner stuff to me. Like, you can make money off of anything. Somebody will. That's, that's not my main point, but somebody can make money off of anything that's interesting to you. So they don't even think about following Jesus' footsteps unless it's after 8 a.m. on a Tuesday. So Jesus had been traveling this very, it's just a very ordinary lake. You can see, you know, both ends of the shore from one side. He's been doing two things. He's been doing that preaching, and he's been doing healing. But look back to verse 7. It says a great crowd followed him. Why? Because the great crowd had heard all that Jesus was doing, and they wanted what he offered. And this is significant, because at this point in Jesus' life, this is the point at which Jesus' fame starts growing very rapidly. Let's read on. We're going to see why Jesus' fame has gathered such a great crowd. Uh, We're going to read in verse 9. Verse 9 says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had, had diseases pressed around Jesus to touch him. So let's paint the picture here. Jesus has withdrawn from healing in the synagogue. He's taken his disciples down to the Sea of Galilee. They're probably exhausted. The disciples are probably trying to figure out their next steps. People are plotting to kill their rabbi. They're trying to get a little rest and then this massive crowd of people from all over the country comes and literally swarms, presses in on Jesus, the Bible says, as if to crush him. It's hot. People are sweaty. It probably smells like rotting fish in the sun. It's incredibly loud because people are just shouting. They're trying to get Jesus' attention. And verse 10 says that all who had diseases we're reaching out, trying desperately to touch Jesus. Now, I don't even like looking at your kids when they have runny noses. I can't think of how gross it must have been to have a multitude of just categorically, visibly diseased people just trying to reach out and touch you. Does that give you the icks? It does for me, to the point of crushing you. This massive crowd is from all over the region. Think about what it must have taken to, to, to gather people This many people from so far away. I did a little research. To drive from Sidon to the Sea of Galilee today, it would take you about six hours. Roughly the same amount of time it would take for us to go from here to Fairbanks. So now subtract cars. Subtract phones, subtract email, subtract internet access from the equation. What would somebody have to say to you face-to-face to drop everything you're doing, to drop work today to get you to walk to Fairbanks. Because that's what we're talking about here. You'd have to be desperate. I'd probably get to about Eagle River. And I'd probably think to myself, like, is leprosy that bad? (laughs) Let's go home. It would be the truly determined that would make it all the way, right? Right? And when you finally get there, you see the guy you've been looking for. So you you push your exhausted body through the multitudes of just sweaty other people from Wasilla and Soldatna and Seward. These guys all left their fishing boats and they walked for days without showering just to see this one man. I think we should just inhabit that desperation for a moment. These people need something. This passage here, it shows us two distinct groups of people, and it's really important that we differentiate between the two. So the first group are his disciples. This is the group of people that he's been gathering uh, ever since the beginning of his ministry. We have the names of many, uh, you know, like Simon and Andrew, we have James and John, we have Levi as well. But above and beyond that, uh, the disciples, just more people are following Jesus right now. They're following to learn from him and to just give themselves in the service to jesus's good news these people are jesus's true followers they are the ones that have submitted themselves to his teachings which are to repent and to believe and of course that repentance and belief in the things that jesus taught remains to this day it remains the basis of our faith in christ jesus that's what makes us true followers as well we repent and we believe but separate from jesus disciples are this second group. Now, this second group is, of course, the crowd that we've been talking about this whole time. See, where Jesus' words and his teachings and his character, they've gathered a small group of devoted followers. The healings that Jesus had done gathered a massive crowd. And, of course, it's, it's natural this would happen. Uh, as humans, it's our default to gravitate towards things or people that have something to offer us. That's not a surprise to anybody. The crowd is so, it's so alluring to us. Being a part of the crowd allows us to do many things that honestly we would never just be brave enough to do without it. It's just too tempting for us. When we're part of a crowd, we get to guard ourselves from any kind of judgment. We get to guard ourselves with anonymity, right? Being anonymous. Let's talk about that for a moment. What is it like to be in a crowd? Well, at its basis level, a crowd is something that is used to protect You know, watch any wildlife documentary. All of creation knows that there's safety within the herd. But animals are driven by instinct. Their motivations are simple, you know, eat, breed, survive. Something as powerful as a crowd is used to protect those driving forces of existence in the animal kingdom. Excuse me. So what happens when we introduce the sinful desires of mankind into this formula of protection and safety? Right? As is so often the case with all of God's perfect design, human longing, twisted motivations, they'll take God's plans and they'll just distort them into something that can be used you know, for purely selfish gain. This is something we excel at, taking something good for the many and boiling it down to be a tool for selfish gain. That's a thing we're good at. The crowd is now a means to an end for us. It's about getting what you want We don't have to worry about being vulnerable as long as we find a crowd big enough. You know, for better or worse, crowds are an incredibly effective tool. Most relevant to us, though, is the crowd's ability to cut us off from truly knowing and being known. This great crowd that's threatening to crush Jesus, it formed because they wanted something from him. Jesus is just a miracle worker to the crowd. They had no idea who he really was. And once the momentum of this multitude just started to press in on Jesus, they really had no choice. They had to see it through. They had to follow it through. It was already moving. And it's not that the crowd wanted something wrongly. You know, Jesus did have the ability and seemingly the willingness to heal. He was doing that. He was doing that on purpose. But had the crowd known who Jesus was and what he came to accomplish, man, their reward would have been so much better. We sang this a whole bunch this morning, but you and I need to understand that knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. See, the multitude of people didn't know they were looking at God himself, clothed in human weakness, coming to die on their behalf to free them from sin and death. They just knew that they needed something from him, and they were willing to crush him to get it. Maybe that's your attitude towards Jesus. Maybe that's your attitude towards his church. Like, we can just look deeply for just a moment. Just do this for yourself. Honestly assess your motivations for being here today. Because if I'm being honest, you know, it's really tempting for me to just make a checklist of things that I need. And then use Jesus and use the church to just tick those things off. But as soon as that list stops getting checked off, man, I would just crush it and just leave it in the dust. That's my temptation. Jesus does offer healing. The Bible does offer some level of prosperity and blessing and you know, courage to face the day. The church offers a place of uh, friendship, a place to belong. These things are all good things, but they're not the gospel. Those things... Are not the primary thing. If those are our primary things, as soon as our bodies fail, as soon as we hit hard times, you know, as soon as we start to feel like strangers in this room, we would just leave it all behind. We'd just go search out the next group that's going to carry us to the next thing. But, church, the best news for us here today is that the gospel frees us from the crowd. The gospel frees us from the crowd. We don't have to remain a faceless part of the mob because Jesus, he actually reaches in and he takes us by the hand and he brings us into his fold. That's the difference between a member of the crowd and a disciple of Jesus here in this passage. Jesus is offering himself to you today. He's offering himself to you to trust him as a gentle, loving savior, not just a miracle worker or a blessing dispenser. Let's look at what it means to be uh, in the crowd versus how that differs from being a true disciple of Jesus. Let's compare and and contrast. We're going to do a bunch of that today. The temptation of being in the crowd is to just blend in and remain unknown for the sake of protecting ourselves. It's also for the sake of giving us the kind of foolhardiness we need to just take what we want without fear of any kind of consequence. The crowd will do that for you. And in both cases, we run the risk of getting just trampled or crushed or just left behind by the very crowd that we thought we had found safety in. It's really, it's not a matter of if, but when. And of course, many of you, myself included, you're probably thinking this whole time, like, nah, not me at all. I hate crowds. I just want peace and quiet. Like, I hear you. I know, me too, me too. I just want to do my own thing. I just want to be left alone alone. But listen, there's no better place to hide and not talk to anybody like in a crowd. Because we're not just talking about a a large group of people standing or sitting in proximity to each other. Take life groups, for example. Without the hope of the gospel, here's what life groups would be it would be 10 people sitting in a circle once a week, eating tacos, and sharing their opinions on stuff, which admittedly, it does sound rad. I would do that, that sounds incredible. But without the rallying point of Jesus, in that life group, there's no vulnerability. And as a result, there's no real lasting change because there's no intimacy. It just doesn't sound worth it to me. See, when the gospel frees us from the crushing weight of the crowd, we are freed from anonymity and we are able to be intimately known. We are known by Jesus as our personal savior, he being our first brother as co-heirs with him. If that sounds weird, we're gonna look to that in scripture today. So let's read this passage. This is Romans 8, chapter 12. I'll explain what this means. Romans 8, chapter 12, chapter eight, excuse me, yeah, Romans 8, verse 12. I've read the Bible before. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with Jesus. To be known as a fellow heir with Christ, that is not anonymous. That's something the crowd could never, ever offer you. You could never call the crowd Abba, Father, You know, we can never mob our way into God's family. You are invited in. I think uh, the place where a lot of this is going to play out most practically and naturally for you is uh, is within life groups. You know, in a lot of ways, life groups are the community arm of the church. That's where a lot of our uh, non-Sunday interactions take place. So in order to make sure that life groups continue to be what God wants them to be, we have to be on guard against our own selfish tendencies that threaten to just overwhelm the purpose of meeting in each other's homes. A common way that happens is when we cease to be gospel-centered and we engage in groupthink. This is just what happens to Christians when they gather together under any banner other than Jesus. What happens is we use the name of Jesus together, collectively, to steer our lives towards the things that we idolize. We often place the weight of our hopes and our dreams on just the strongest personality in the room. We listen to others' voices to tell us what to think. But Jesus offers us so much more than that. He's so much better than healing and prosperity. He's even better than life change. Like, you'll still experience all those things, sure. But they pale in comparison to just knowing who Jesus is, to just knowing Jesus. Let's look for a moment to the book of Philippians 3. Philippians 3, starting in verse 8, says this, and this will also be on the screens for you. You don't need to turn there. and the power of his resurrections, and I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I attain the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul believes, and rightly so, that you can gain everything in this world. You can gain any blessing, every blessing, and it would just be like rubbish. It would be like trash compared to just knowing Jesus and being known by him. When you know Jesus and you truly believe in him and his gospel, it frees you from the crowd. Jesus supplies everything you need in him. Like You just don't need that safety net anymore. When we are freed from being swept up in the crowd, we move from groupthink to being gospel-centered. That's the goal. And not only does this gospel free us from the crowd, but now the gospel frees us for the crowd. Jesus intent in Mark 3 as he walked around the sea of Galilee what he wanted to do was minister to the crowds that's what he was doing it was not a bad thing that they had gathered around him there but a great weakness of being in a crowd is that they're just going to go wherever they're pointed a crowd is easily manipulated see there are I'll use the word insidious there are insidious platforms in everybody's lives here today they're all pointing you somewhere towards something some of them are neutral Some of them are potentially even positive. But many of them, many of the platforms that are in your life that you may not even know are there are selfish. They're 100% selfish and they're only interested in what they can take from you. You know, your information, your money, your time. When Jesus saves you by making himself known to you and he calls you to repent and believe, you actually become a tool in Jesus' hand to minister to the people around you in a way that draws more people into the fold of God. You have the greatest rallying points. You can point people to Jesus and his power and his mercy and you can only do that if the gospel has taken root in your life as a known individual, not a faceless husk in the crowd. See, my temptation is to always point uh, people to do to to something that Jesus could do for them. But that's not necessarily ministry. Like if somebody's starving, if they're unable to move their limbs for being just emaciated and weak, it really doesn't help them for you to point out really nice ingredients and to tell them how to make enough money to buy them. Like it doesn't help a starving man to teach them how to cook. If somebody is starving to death, you, you feed them. You feed them what they need. Church... When someone is dying a slow, unremarkable death, just caught up shambling like a zombie in whatever direction the crowd has decided to move, you need to take them and bring them to Jesus because that's what they need. So often we feel like we need to make promises on Jesus' behalf about the things that Jesus will or won't do for them. We kind of hope that exposure to Jesus' stuff will eventually lead to you know, a saving faith in Jesus. But honestly, that's completely backwards. You know, forgive this flawed example, but it's like if I was diagnosed with a terminal disease and there was one medicine that would cure it and it was 100% effective, but instead of just giving me that medicine, you tried to sell me on like the positive side effects. You know what I mean? Like, it's great that a medicine's gonna help cure my receding hairline, maybe I'll lose a few pounds, but really what you needed to tell me was the medicine that's gonna cure the thing that's gonna kill me. That's Jesus, that's what the gospel frees us to do. We don't need to rely on gathering a crowd around promises of a better life, around Jesus' stuff. Because of who Jesus is, we are able to know him and be known by him and each other. We're gonna finish our passage out today as we come towards the end of our time. Verse 11 of Mark chapter three says this. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Firstly, it shouldn't go unnoticed that the unclean spirits, your evil spirits, your Bible might say demons, they know who Jesus is here. And they're terrified of him. Don't miss that Jesus' mere presence (laughs) drives away evil and darkness. That is something that's going to happen in your life, but that's not what we're taking from here today. Jesus commands the spirits here to keep their mouths shut. It's not because Jesus wants to remain anonymous. It's because the timing wouldn't have been right. Jesus hasn't revealed his divinity yet. He's going to do this on his own terms, on his own time, because it's his truth to reveal. You know, there's also plenty to be said about the source of the information here, right? Like, if clearly evil spirits started to herald the name of Jesus, that would have the potential to damage Jesus' reputation. It would damage the crowd's perception of his character. I can't speak for anybody else, but, like, man, my gut just turns in knots every time I'm driving around, and, like, you just see, like, this big lifted Dodge Ram with just bumper stickers all on the back. Do you know these guys? It's like I love Jesus on this side, God, and yeah, this is great. And then on this side, it's just like I hate, I hate these people because they're not me. Like I just feel sick to my stomach when I see that because he's just not representing my loving, inclusive Savior. Like tie that all back in for a second. Like that person, that guy, he didn't come up with any of those ideas on his own. They're not the only person that believes that. There's a reason that all these ideas were on a bumper sticker to begin with you know somebody's selling that string of words in that order to more than just this one guy people that think they know about Jesus that is a group who needs the real Jesus they need him for who he is not just the stuff that he can get them not just what group think tells them to believe when you are saved and you receive the holy spirit you receive you gain discernment and you have the ability to help others in their own faith journeys by pointing them to Jesus. Now that you've been saved from the crowd, here's where it points you to and here's where we're going to end today. The gospel frees you from the crowd and it empowers you to live in gospel-centered community. And that the whole and the Holy Spirit blesses you with the discernment to know the difference between just being in the crowd around Jesus and actually being in meaningful community. We're going to have a bunch of uh, comparisons on the screen here. We're going to try to go rapid fire through them. So the crowd is willing to crush anybody to get what they want. That's why the crowd was mobbing Jesus. They wanted him to heal them, and they were completely willing to destroy him to get it. If you're, uh, if you're just a part of the crowd, your primary motivation for church attendance is to be fed, You attend your church until the pastor, honestly, just stops saying what you want to hear, or the elders don't let you do whatever it is you think you want to do. And then what does the crowd do? You torch it on Facebook, and you attend the next church. You try to move somewhere that just feels more right for you, you know? You go to life group to tick that box of spirituality, but as soon as the church doesn't do what you want, life group becomes the channel to just vent your frustrations. I've seen that happen but gospel-centered community is actually going to place serving each other above individual gain. Your life groups will be focused more on uh, encouraging each other with prayer and the word. It's not going to be about puffing up your intelligence with just rote Bible study. Now, please keep studying your Bible, but do the work. Don't just memorize the words. Your focus on Sunday morning, if you are truly in gospel-centered community, is to be with other believers and to worship Jesus together. Next, the crowd values noise and movement. I remembered the word I was trying to use after I printed this off. The crowd values busyness, just being busy. The more voices saying the same thing, the better. The faster we get things done, the better. The crowd places extreme emphasis on just making things right, or making things the way that they want it to be. The issue, of course, is that they'll bulldoze forward and just leave anybody that gets in their way in the dust. But gospel-centered community values the individual personhood of each member. And they take the appropriate amount of time to move forward with their goals. You know, like a herd protecting its young or the sickly, they don't move until everyone is ready to. But they do so lovingly and without any kind of resentment. The crowd, what they're going to do is they're going to follow the strongest personality. If your church is built on the personality of one person, Sorry, it's just a crowd. The loudest voice is gonna make all the rules. They're gonna make every decision. It's all gonna fall on one guy. But in gospel-centered community, all eyes are on Jesus as he draws them together. And not just the people in the seats either. I, I mean, your leadership too. Your pastors are gonna love Jesus. Your staff, your musicians, they'll all be focused in on Jesus as Lord. And that unifying love for Jesus is what draws us together. If you are simply in the crowd around Jesus, what you're going to do is you're going to place your expectations on others. You're going to place your expectations anywhere but here. And this point has way too many examples today, but you know, I'll give you some of the bigger ones that concern me. The crowd expects the pastor to shoulder the entire burden of your spiritual growth. You would invite your friends to church hoping that the pastor is going to convert them instead of just sharing the gospel yourself. The crowd constantly sees a need and thinks, wow, somebody should really do this ministry. I think that stuff all the time. Instead of just being willing to do the work that you thought was clearly necessary. (laughs) Like, here's a little litmus test. If you think, why doesn't True North Church do this ministry? It's because you haven't started it yet. The crowd expects the church to cure their loneliness, and that's hard, I know. The church can absolutely fill uh, the void of friendship in your life, but it can't just be that for you. No, instead of placing all your expectations in the wrong place, a gospel-centered community will anticipate the work that Jesus will do, and they're going to do the work that is placed before them. So church, my encouragement for you today is just to lay down your expectations for Jesus and his church. If you would just lay that at his feet in prayer. Confess your need for him, that just knowing Jesus would be greater than your desire for what he can get you. Trust in Jesus that, that, that what he gives you and where he places you, it would be the, those are the best things for you to have and the best places for you to be. Trust him in that. That you would believe today that if Jesus put you here now, the reason was is because he wanted you to hear his gospel today. This week, I hope you believe that Jesus put you in other Christians' lives, that he put you in other people's homes to do more than just sit idly by while you shore up your defenses and you build walls around yourself. Jesus wants you to give yourselves fully to gospel-centered community today. That's what he wants for you. Don't be content to just be a faceless member of the crowd and to just crush the life out of anything good that you touch. Be an active part of gospel-centered community of believers that are drawn towards each other by focusing on Jesus. Be a part of that community. Use that discernment that the Holy Spirit gave you. Lay those expectations that point you away from Jesus. Lay those down. And to just live a life of anticipation of what Jesus will do as you submit to him in worship and in service. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of our worship and praise. You are so much better than the things that we seek you for. God, would you teach us that truth today? The Father, you are better. Jesus, you are better. Holy Spirit, you are better than anything in this world. Teach us to live in eager expectation of what you're doing. Teach us to do the work that's placed before us, Lord teach us to worship you truly and fully and devote ourselves to other believers as well. God, we know you're good and we know your mercy endures forever. Lord, I wanna thank you. And as we enter into this time of worship through song, God, I pray that you are blessed. I pray that you are honored today with words that we mean, with songs that are important to us. God, let us mean how much we sing how much we need you today. Father, we love you and we praise you and we know that you're gonna do the things that you say you're gonna do because you are faithful always. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.